0: Good morning, it's Saturday, May 16th. We're reading through the Old and New Testament. Today we are in 2 Kings, chapters 15, Through 17 and 15, Uh, it's like a ping pong match. You get a lot of information from the North and the South about the kings. And the thing to catch in all of this is a lot of compromise, a lot of conspiracy, a lot of opposition, a lot of sin, a lot of consequences that remind us of the power of sin and the way that it affects and entangles people's lives. In chapter 16, Ahaz becomes the king in the South. Uh, remember, that's the line of David. It's a bad season for Israel, uh, for Judah in this case. They have an evil king, Ahaz. He sadly links himself to Assyria as uh, giving tribute to them as a vassal. And we never really untangle that problem of subservience to the world powers. So Israel takes a real step backwards in chapter 16. In chapter 17, Hoshia in the north This is a nine-year reign that ends the Northern Kingdom. So we are in 721 BC. Uh, The South is gonna last until 586, but in 721, uh, BC. This is the 20th king, the last king of the northern tribes. They fall, of course, to Assyria. That's why we see that drama with Ahaz uh, with the world power Assyria. That will transition to Babylon, as you know. But we have this end of this of the northern tribes, the 10 tribes of Israel to the north. So a real landmark uh, red letter chapter, chapter 17, 2 Kings 17. If you take an Old Testament survey with me or anyone at CBI, you know that is a critical chapter that ends the um, the divided kingdom. We're back to a single kingdom in the South. In our New Testament reading, we are in the first 21 verses of John 6. This is the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus, of course, does two mass feedings showing that he can supply things, calls himself uh, the bread of life, the idea of him providing as a sustenance for us. Unfortunately, that was something that led to people saying, we want you to be in charge of this, kingdom in in Israel, the New Testament, so that we might overthrow Rome. They wanted to take him by force to make him their king. They concluded based on that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that he was the prophet, the one that was to come. Not Elijah that was to come, not John the Baptist, but the Messiah. That's shorthand for the Messiah with a Definite article to begin with a capital P, I think, in most of our translations that reminds us of what people concluded there, but they saw more as a political deliverer instead of the Savior who they were to trust in, that the kingdom would come later. The kingdom with christ on the throne would come now it's been two thousand years but he would come to deliver himself as the sacrifice for our sins he walks on water i hate to just throw that in at the end here in the middle of chapter six uh, but they're terrified they're scared he tells them not to be afraid and certainly he can in the midst of that storm this is not the calming of the storm this is him walking by on the sea in the storm and shows that they uh, shouldn't have any fear because the king of all creation is, uh, he is their captain and their master, and they have nothing to be afraid of in terms of this world. Our community imperative, an interesting one in verses 17 and 18 of the passage that we've been going through in Philippians chapter 2. Listen carefully to this in Philippians 2, 17. It says, even, Paul's speaking now about his own life, I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, a poetic way to talk about his own death. He says, on the sacrificial offering of your faith, how he's been serving them, he says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the community imperative here is Christians looking across, in this case, several miles with a letter in between to say, you should be rejoicing with me and I'm going to rejoice with you. So simply put, our community imperative today, I put it this way, is to be glad and rejoice with other Christians. Of course, there's a long list of things you can think about that should be the impetus for our rejoicing, things that are important, that have happened in your life, things that God has done, uh, the forgiveness that you received in Christ, people that you know that you've prayed for that have come to faith in Christ, uh, whatever it might be, share some of those things and find some other Christians today in your communication to say, hey, rejoice with me that this has happened. I think of that, Great parable, Jesus tells a set of them about the woman who loses her coin, or the shepherd that lost his sheep, or the father that's lost his son. And uh, while that certainly illustrates the great redemption that we have in Christ that we should all be thankful for, those illustrations are good ones as well because the Shepherd says, he calls his friends, he says, rejoice, rejoice with me. I found my sheep. And a woman who's lost some money, she comes back into it and she calls her friends to rejoice. And of course, the father throws a big elaborate party because his son had come back. And on a smaller scale, certainly that should be the kind of thing that we think of, not just rejoicing in the huge gifts that God gives like salvation, but finding smaller things for you to say as Paul did, hey, rejoice with me, be glad with me. So today, be glad and rejoice with other Christians. will backing in tomorrow as we continue through our Bible reading.